we're in the book of Acts. We've been, this is week seven, um, and this is um, just such a joy for me each week to come in and to kind of open up the scripture and, and to read it with you guys and to just talk about what, what's going on in the story. Uh, but I have this question to ask you. Have you ever seen, have you ever witnessed something that was so awesome that you had to talk about it? Like, like something just totally amazing. Like, um, I know that football season's over, and I know that not all of you are football fans. That's okay. Um, but I was at the Seahawks-Saints playoff game the, the day of the beast quake. And I'm telling you what, after seeing that, people talked about that. Like, people are still talking about that. But if you've ever witnessed something that's just absolutely incredible, you talk about it, like the birth of your kid. You don't have to tell parents to share the news, or grandparents for that matter, right? It's exciting. It's amazing. It's, it's a miracle. When we see things that are uh, incredible, we want to share it. And in our culture today, things have gotten easier and easier to share. So the threshold of what's shareable has gone down a little bit. <laughs> but at the ease at which people can share, is, it's incredible. You just click a little button. If you have social media, and I know that not all of you do, but if you have social media, you just click this little button, and wham, you can share it with all your friends, whatever it is. And I would encourage all of us to really think about that before we push that button. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but you can also share anything. You can share anything. It doesn't even have to be that incredible. And so really what's happened is like the really shareable things have kind of gotten lost in the midst of all the other things like funny memes and and all these kind of random things. But when something is absolutely incredible, people are going to talk about it. Because when something amazing happens, as my words here say on the screen, uh, you don't have to tell people to talk about it. Have you noticed that? You don't have to tell people to share amazing stories. They want to talk about it. Can I tell you that that's at the heart of God's plan for evangelism? That's at the heart of evangelism. That something so incredible has happened that you're not going to be able to help but talk about it. Sometimes I feel like we've lost sight of that. And I don't, I don't know where it happens at some point, you remember when you first got saved, for whatever reason, what God did in your life was so incredible. It changed your life. It's something that, that you want to share with people. And if you don't want to share it with people, and I'm, I'm like, well, did something even happen? <laughs> is it good news? At the heart of evangelism is, is this understanding of human nature that when something incredible happens, people are going to talk about it. It's, it seems like, though, in the church, oftentimes the strategy for evangelism is convincing people they're wrong, right? And how many of you have seen that work? <laughs> okay, we call that apologetics, and I'm not going to, apologetics is important. It's important for Christians to, to, be, to be able to understand what we believe and why we believe it, but that's not typically how people are drawn to Jesus, They're drawn because something incredible has happened in the life of someone they know, and they want to know more about it. That's how it happens. Then they listen. Then they hear. When God does something incredible in our lives, it's not just for us to have an incredible story. It's to draw people in, to praise God, to hear the glory of God, and to to ask the question, 
How did that happen? Why did that happen? What's going on? And that's what we're seeing in this early church movement in the book of Acts. Something incredible has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. But before that, even before the Holy Spirit came, even before the book of Acts was written and started, Jesus did something incredible. Do you guys remember what Jesus did? He rose from the dead. (laughs) When he rose from the dead, this is the most amazing event in the history of the world. We should never get tired of talking about it. And yet, at times, it's just kind of, it's like, it's just kind of a thing, even for Christians. Do, Do we still get excited about that? Do we still think that that's the most amazing story in the world? Is it still something that's worth sharing? Is it still something that's worth talking about whenever we have an opportunity? See, oftentimes we get more excited if if we see a physical healing than the fact that Jesus conquered death. But physical healing is temporary. Spiritual healing leads to eternal life. When we see in the book of Acts, when we see the apostles, when we see Jesus in his life doing these miracles, it's never about the physical healing. It's about drawing people's attention to the fact that Jesus was God and he had the power to save. He made this very clear on a couple of different occasions. He told a paralyzed person, hey, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Essentially saying, I forgive you. And the, the Pharisees are going, how can you do that? How can you forgive sin? And he, well, for one, he was God, right? But he, he says, well, you don't believe me? Well, what, what's more difficult, to forgive sins or to, to heal this man's body? Well, so you'll believe? Um, hey, go ahead and get up. And he gets up. But the miracle that day was not that the man was healed physically. The miracle that day was that he had received salvation. Because that man, though he was healed... He died physically, but he was saved to eternal life with Jesus. We can't lose sight of that. That brings us to today's passage in the book of Acts. If you've not been here with us, you can kind of look back if you've got a Bible or bust out an app or just listen. Uh, last week, we, we heard the story of Peter and John as now they've began this, this church movement has started. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. And they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, the, the stories of Jesus, what Jesus said, what Jesus did. They're listening. And they're filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And they're praying together. And they're, and they're sharing meals together. And they're going to the temple together. And so one day, Peter and John are going to the temple, and they see this man who, according to the scriptures, has been there since birth. He's been lame since birth, set at the door of the temple, and Peter and John look at him, and, they, and he looks at them, and he says, hey, do you guys have anything? And they say, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And they lift him up, and he walks. Is that a cool story? Right? So where do you think Peter and John go from there? Do they start going around and saying, hey, come to us. We can do miracles. That's not what's going to happen today. We're going to listen to the rest of the story. 
So this man gets up, and if you hadn't been able to walk all of your life, what would you do? Run. Jump. Frolic. Prance. Dance. I mean, the, see, one of the things I love about when reading the scriptures is, is try, to, try to feel what that would have felt like. Like, don't just, don't just read words on a page. Because this isn't just some fictional story. This is, this is a man's real life. He was not able to walk for his entire life. And we're going to find out today that he was 40 years old. And he gets up for the first time and he's, and he's got to figure out this thing. So he's like, <laughs> it says he's clinging to Peter and John. Because he's never walked before. And the people have seen this man. They've walked by him. They've given him alms. They've seen him day after day begging. And now he's standing. Now he's running. Now I'm sure there's tears. I'm sure it's just overabundance of emotions for him. This is where it picks up in Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. (laughs) Poor guys. (laughs) Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What, what are they talking about, Peter and John? Okay, they've just seen this man get healed. You know what? They're not talking about the fact that this man just got healed. What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the fact that in Jesus, we have proof of the resurrection of the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus came to tell us. Not just the physical healing, but the good news. That in him, even though we face death, we can have life in him. So that annoys religious people. You know why? Because when you start telling people that if you trust in Jesus, then death isn't going isn't to really touch you, then Religion, as they were teaching it, has no power. So it's, it's going to rob them of their authority. So they realize we can't do anything. We can't offer anything like that. So they're annoyed. Aren't you, like, isn't that an interesting way of phrasing that? Like, I imagine being the leaders of, that, of the Jewish church, and, and these guys are, like, all of a sudden, everybody's listening to them, and they're annoyed. Like pesky disciples, we just tried to end this movement. We were just dealing with this. Pentecost was the day that the church started. That's 50 days after the Passover when Jesus rose from the dead. So we're talking about just a few short months from the time that Jesus was crucified to this moment where, uh, really, like the disciples are back and they're talking about Jesus and now they're talking about his resurrection. Annoyed. Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So here we go. We got 120, Acts chapter 1. 3,000 get saved after the day of Pentecost. And now we're up to 5,000. People are seeing not just the power of God to do a miracle, but they're hearing the story of Jesus. And this 
this context is it's ready to explode because they saw Jesus' miracles. They wanted to believe in him and they kind of got mixed up. The crowd got mixed up. They started listening to the authorities and they got mixed up and they shouted, crucify him. And they're ready. The kindling has been laid and it's dry and Jesus knew it. He knew it. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave you guys with the power of the Holy Spirit and watch this thing erupt. And so they come and, they're, and they're, they perform miracle. And just this one miracle, this man, whom had been there forever, 40 years, his whole life, he gets up. And again, that buzz that was happening when Jesus was around starts happening again. And so the, the, the religious leaders are annoyed. And 5,000 people are saved. It says in verse 5, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, Ananias and the high priests and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were who, who were of the high priestly family. See, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priestly family, these are the same people that had to conspire to, to kill Jesus. So they gathered together because they're going, I mean, can you imagine? Just, just imagine with me. I know that we're on Team Jesus, right? But imagine what it would have been like to be them. Okay, you just made this thing go away. <laughs> and now it's like, it's starting to pop back up. It's starting to, their fear is that it's being resurrected. Huh? Right? Because he was resurrected. So they're, they're, they're scratching their heads. And they get together, and they've got to talk. And so this is what it says in verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. See, it's still, Peter's, it's still not Peter's ability here. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says he's still filled, which to me implies that there is a possibility that if you're not intentionally seeking the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you could, end, you could stop being filled, okay? So he's still filled. He's still going towards Jesus. He's still pursuing the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own mission, plan, will. It's still in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man by this by what means this man has been healed? Let me just take a break for a second. Peter's going, so wait a minute. Why, why are we here on trial? Why are we here today? We're here because you're, you're examining us because we did a good deed. You're examining us because a man who had been crippled from birth is walking today. And you've called us in here to examine us. Okay, imagine you're again you're back in the, the seat of the Sadducees. Oh that's always one of funny fun names. And and Peter says that to you. And even even the most pride filled, most uh, power seeking religious person is going, he's got a point. He's got a point. 
We're, we're, we've got these guys here because they just, <laughs> they just healed the guy. And he goes on, Peter goes on and says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, do you guys, I keep going back to the story of Peter because he is a just, he's a great case study of the difference between before and after resurrected Jesus. <laughs> Do you remember what happened in Peter's life before he saw Jesus resurrected? He had told Jesus, I'll never betray you. I will go with you. I will die for you. And Jesus looked at him. And if you think Jesus was always everybody's best friend and made them feel really good, imagine him telling him, no, Peter, I'm sorry, buddy, but you're going to betray me three times. You're going to betray me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, Peter, this really big, bold man who we see here preaching these sermons, is, is questioned. And, and they say to him, it says this girl, this little girl questions him and goes, Hey, aren't you one of the, aren't you one of the disciples who was with Jesus? And Peter's response is, Nope, not me. You know, see ya. <laughs> He gets, he gets questioned three times on that night that Jesus is being tried and beaten unjustly to just one time acknowledge, yeah, I was with him, and he won't do it. He denies him. Something happened to Peter. A couple things happened to Peter. One, Jesus rose from the dead, and Peter saw him. Jesus came to Peter, and he restored him. Because, can I tell you what? In our life of faith, there are going to be moments where we fail. The story of Peter is incredibly hopeful for us in that moment. Because Jesus is going to, he, he, he wants to restore. He actually says to him, once you've returned, strengthen your brothers. So Peter has met the resurrected Jesus. That's life-changing, don't you think? And the other thing is he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So this Peter that denied knowing Jesus, now he's, he's in the, the hot seat. And, and I don't know that we have anything quite like this. And, they, and Peter has just witnessed the corruption of this group of people as they secretly arrested Jesus and had him tried and beaten and killed. So Peter is now getting tested again. And they put him on the hot seat, and they're asking him this question, and they're imploring him to say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, so let me be clear, I'm here because we did a good deed, and let me tell you how this happened. Jesus, the Jesus that you secretly arrested, the Jesus that you put on trial unjustly, the Jesus who you made false claims and accusations about, the Jesus whom you turned over to the rulers, to be executed. The Jesus who's the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the cornerstone, the 
that the builders rejected. This is Jesus who's done this miracle. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) That's a little bit of a transformation for Peter, isn't it? Can you imagine being in Peter's shoes? I'm like, gulp? (laughs) What would I do? Knowing that these people have already proven they're willing to go to any length to stop this uprising. He tells them to their face, you messed up. (laughs) You messed up. Do you know if they know that too? Like I was saying, they, they saw what happened the day Jesus was crucified. They saw the sky go dark. That stuff really happened. The the veil in the temple was torn. These people would have known about that. So they're still still trying to grasp and grapple with this. And you know what we have to get about this? Peter is not in this situation looking at them, judging them, wishing for them to be destroyed. Peter is imploring them to be saved. He's not, he's not up there to try and just make them feel guilty and to know that they're wrong. He wants them, any of them, who are willing to turn and trust in Jesus to have that opportunity. Just last week, we talked about the fact that Peter told the crowd, he's like, you acted in ignorance. You didn't understand, but this was God's plan. So here he is in front of this group of people who killed his best friend brutally, and he's looking at them not through the eyes of judgment, but through the eyes of today's your day to get saved. Because when we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to come with the heart of God. And God's heart we see it in Jesus. His love for his, the enemies of God. He wants them to turn. He wants them. He's imploring them through, through good works and through miracles and through the message of the gospel. He's imploring them to trust in him. And so Peter has the same mission. He's not looking at them as enemies. He's looking at them that day through the eyes of grace to say, today, Trust in this Jesus whom you saw. You saw with your own eyes. You knew it was unjust. And you saw what happened the day that he was crucified. The Roman centurion said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the son of God. And he tells them. He looks them straight in the eye. The word that we see in the scriptures is is the word that's translated as boldness. That's a word for it, right? Boldness. It also could be translated frankness. See, what Peter doesn't do is go on some long tirade of apologetics. He just tells them what happened. Frank, honest, to the point. Point blank, to their face. And then he goes on to say, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, is the only way to salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That means not Abraham, not Isaac, not the patriarchs. None of that can save you. Whatever your religious background or belief, that doesn't save. It's just Jesus. Do you know what he's saying? He's telling them that everything that they've believed and everything that they've taught 
is eternally powerless and pointless. You know that when we give that message to people in the world, it's, it's a big pill to swallow. That's what we carry with us when we carry the gospel. We're looking at, at the people around us, the people in our lives, and we're saying, don't trust in that stuff because it's powerless. Don't seek that stuff because it's pointless. There's only one way to eternal life. There's only one way to escape this life with salvation, and that's through Jesus. No other name. This is part of the good news. This, this, this is the good news. Excuse me. This is, this is part of the plan for God's evangelism of people. It's not just the declaration, you're all wrong. It comes with an invitation, and it comes with the good works of the Holy Spirit. As we've seen miracles, as we're going to see this group of people continue to love their enemies, they go hand in hand. The good work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as their lives are transformed, combined with the message of the gospel, which includes to the world you're wrong. It's couched in love. It's couched in the heart of God for people. When we disconnect those two things, we get two different errors. One is we just love everybody and then we don't tell anyone that anyway is wrong. It's pointless and powerless. Makes people feel good right into hell. <laughs> and then the other side of it, we tell them that they're wrong and that we're right. And then they look at us and they go, well, your life is miserable and, and angry and frustrated. That's, that's powerless and pointless. They hold up signs that yell about the judgment of God. And in so doing, they disqualify the message. And it's like, a, it's like going around and slapping people in the face and telling them I love you. We cannot disconnect these two things, the love and the good works and the power of God to do miracles and to transform lives and the message of the gospel that there is no other name by which people can be saved other than Jesus. We cannot disconnect them, church. They have to go hand in hand. It's incredibly difficult to walk that road. It's incredibly difficult when you come down to it with somebody whom you've been loving and you've been serving and you've been seeking to, to see them make this realization and they look at you and they have that realization that you're telling them that everything else in life is a lie and doesn't tell, does not point them in the right direction. And you have to look at them and go, yes, that's, I am saying that. I'm saying that with all the love that I can muster but you have to understand that salvation comes from nobody else. Nowhere else. It's just Jesus. It's a difficult conversation. One that, honestly, we get tired of. It, it's painful because we have people in our lives that we want them to be saved. And so we don't want to cause the stuff. We don't want to put up a stumbling block. <laughs> so we have to continue to lean, lean into that tension, tension. The tension of love and good works and the tension of the gospel and the power of God that comes to people. And it, it is the power of salvation. See, we carry the only message, salvation. 
we have access to the power of God in us that comes with his heart and his love for people and his power. We simply cannot do the mission of Jesus if we separate the two. The only way that the message of the gospel cannot feel like a slap in the face is if we remain filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and our lives are marked by transformation, power, and love. That's the plan of God for evangelism. People whose lives are the proof of his love, who have the message of the gospel. Goes on in Acts 4, 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's like Luke includes this, this recognition from this group of people that they saw boldness in Peter and John, but they did not see a formal education. God has used educated people. That's not in some way Luke's way of saying you don't need to be educated. Can I tell you, education's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's not what the Bible is saying. Like, I, I can think of people that might take that and go, well, that formal education stuff, that's from the devil. And that's not, that's not what this is saying, okay? God uses formally educated people. Paul, for example. Moses, another one, received all the education possible. God used him. But what this is saying is that that is not a requirement for service in the kingdom of God. The only thing that's required is a heart that's fully trusting Jesus, filled with the power of God. And you can hear people who, who may not, <laughs> they may not be able to construct a sentence and, <laughs> and pass an English class, <laughs> but they have the power of God, and that's what matters. That's what matters. There's not, there's no uh, prerequisites <laughs> to service in the kingdom of God. And sometimes we make people feel like that. Or sometimes you may even feel like that. And I, and I see this oftentimes when, I, like if I put somebody on the spot and ask them to pray, they're like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I'm like, you can do it. Well, but there's this perception. Like if I don't say the right thing, like, either I'm going to be judged or whatever. It's like, just talk to God. You don't, have to, you don't have to have the right words. In fact, sometimes, and we, Jesus even said this about the religious leaders of the day, is they're really good at praying out loud. <laughs> they can tell you, they can use long prayers and just filled with all the right terminology and it's just like a clanging gong. But the prayers of a person whose heart is transformed, it's, it touches God. So don't ever feel like you don't have something to offer in service to God because you may not feel like you have all the right answers. Sometimes the most powerful answer is the one that comes to it. Just, it's frank. It's just, this is what, this is my experience. This is my question. I love the questions I get from people when they just are honest about it. It's like, man, everybody thinks like that. But we, we sometimes, we, we church it up. Anyway, let's not church it up, people. <laughs> They're uneducated, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
Okay, this is, the, this is kind of the same terminology that we heard when Peter denied he had been with Jesus. The people had looked at him, and they're like, hey, we saw you with him. We know who you are. So these, these religious leaders are looking at these guys, and they're like, it's those guys again. It's the same group of people. And this time, Peter has not denied that he has been with Jesus. This time, he's bold, and he tells them off. They recognize he'd been with Jesus. When, we, when people look at our lives, would they see somebody whom they could say something's different about them? You've been with Jesus. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to us. Because I think that, that oftentimes people in the world can look at our lives and they go, that, they, they may call themselves a Christian, but that person doesn't have the slightest hint of the aroma of Jesus in their life. That shouldn't be true of us, and sometimes it is. And when that happens, we need to repent, not double down. So they recognize, they look at them, and they say, these guys are the guys that have been with Jesus. And their lives carry the same mission and the same power. And then they look and they see the man who had been lame from birth, and now he's standing there. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's one thing that can can stop an argument when people are stuck in their own echo chambers, and that's undeniable proof. We have a hard time in that, with that in our culture. People are always claiming undeniable proof. But in this case, it's truly undeniable. They saw him for 40 years sat there, and they're seeing him standing there today. They, they can't say anything. They can't deny it. And they're not even going to try to fight that. They recognized the lame man. And in spite of what they wanted to say or do, they could not say one word. And they had to be amazed. Verse 15 says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, the, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Do you see how futile that is? Do you see how absolutely pointless that declaration is and how desperate it is? They call them back in and they say, we've talked. And we say, you guys can't, don't, don't say any more about Jesus. What do we already see? How many people are there that, that are believing now? 5,000. How many people know this miracle happened? Everyone in Jerusalem. <laughs> but you guys, <laughs> Peter and John, no more talking. It's completely pointless. See, when something amazing happens, even if you tell people not to talk about it, people are going to talk about it. There's no stopping it. In fact, if you go back and you read the Gospels and you go look at Jesus' life, there are a couple times where he performs a miracle and he instructs the person who has been healed not to tell anyone. It's like, and, and I'm wondering, and I've thought about this just this week, I was thinking about this. I'm like, is this one of those, is this a command that Jesus actually wanted them to obey? 
Or is he making a point? Like, can you imagine, like, one of the cases, he, he raises the man's daughter from the dead. I have a little girl. If she had died, and Jesus raised her from the dead, and he then told me not to talk about it, <laughs> I'd be like, how could you not talk about it? Or the leper whom Jesus heals. And he says, don't tell anybody what I did. Just go to the, go to the priest and show him and, and do the offering for cleansing and you'll be good. You know who is going to be affected by those miracles? So many people. And they're going to be going, what happened? How did she, she was sick, she died. How, did, how is she here? How is she alive? I can't tell you. <laughs> but it's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> It's, 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 it's like kindling. It's ready to explode when the spark hits it. Because they, these people are going, how is this possible? How, is, how, how has this been able to be accomplished? How is our friend who is a leper, how is, it was, how is my brother who is a leper, who's been in the leper colony, he's been outside the city, I haven't been able to see him. How is he standing here in front of me today clean? How? And Jesus is saying, don't tell him. Because he knows when something amazing happens, even if you tell people not to talk about it, they're going to talk about it. So the Pharisees, they tell him, no talking about this. <laughs> As if that would help. But how are Peter and John going to respond? How would you respond if you're in their shoes? This is what it says. And Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you guys go ahead and judge that. You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're saying, you can't stop this. You tried. You killed Jesus. You couldn't stop him. You could do whatever you want to us, but you can't stop this. And if you have a certain song Playing in your head. <laughs> that may or may not be the desired result. <laughs> so when you think about the gospel, when you think about Jesus, you think about anything that can happen to you, you can't touch this. Okay? When it comes to eternal salvation, eternal life in Jesus Christ, you can't touch it. Nothing can touch it. Peter and John are staring these people in the eye, the people that have the power to have them thrown in jail for the rest of their lives or executed on the spot. They can create any kind of false story about them and have them wiped off the planet. And they're looking at them and saying, you guys can't stop it. We can't stop it. You can try to stop it, but just go ahead. Because what have we seen over and over and over again, not only in this story, but through the history of the church? When people try to douse the church's flame with water, it ignites it even hotter. Because when people try to quench what God's doing, like somehow under the suppression of that, it smolders and spreads and gets hotter. And then it comes bursting forth. Just look at, look at the church in China. And I know that we don't talk about these things a lot. But for years, they were pushed underground. The Chinese government tried to suppress the church. 
And then a different regime came in and relieved some of the pressure, the pressure. And all over the nation of China, church people popped up. And they weren't hiding because they were being unfaithful. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were talking. They were meeting in homes, and they were spreading the good news. Under persecution, the church flourishes. You can't stop it. When we go through hard times, Christians, when we, when we really understand the gospel, when we really lean into what Jesus has done, those hard times don't crush us. They build us. They build our faith. And we have to be reminded of that. We have to understand that anything else other than trusting in the name of Jesus is pointless and powerless. We can't be like the rest of the world. And yet sometimes we are sucked into those things, whether it be material possessions or some other lie. And Jesus is there saying, even if you've denied me, come back. Turn back and strengthen one another. Let faith be built again. Can I tell you, we're going to go through hard times. Every person who was ever healed then ended up having to die. All the apostles, all except for John, were martyred for their faith in Jesus. And they, that wasn't because they didn't try with John. They boiled him alive for his faith in Jesus. And the gospel spread. It's still spreading 2,000 years later. Just this last week on Monday, we had a prayer summit for the Assemblies of God leadership and pastors all across the Northwest gathered together to specifically pray for missions and missionaries all around the world, including that God would call missionaries to people who've not heard the name of Jesus before. We sit here in America, and we have our own problems, and we have a mission right in front of us. But there are places on the planet that they've never heard and they've never seen a presentation of the power of God and the power of the gospel. And so we prayed together that God would raise up people to go and to proclaim the good news, to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that could reach across cultural divides because the gospel reaches across cultural divides. It's not an American gospel. We're here because of the faithful work of the power of the Holy Spirit in people who said, my life is yours. Let's not forget that. Because though they tried that day to suppress it, to say, you guys don't go talk about this or we'll kill you. They're just like, okay. Don't you realize what we're talking about here? Don't you realize the good news that we believe is that you can kill us and we're going to be with Jesus. Paul goes, he says, man, I desire to go be with Jesus. He's like saying, get me out of here. And I think there might have been, you know, some element to the fact that he had been a long time in prison. <laughs> but he's, he's ready to go be with Jesus. And he knows that he still has a calling and mission. can't stop it. Not, not once the gospel has taken root. You can't stop it. You know what else is really, really interesting about this story? Is we have recorded here the secret council of the religious elite. How do you think that Luke 
got in on their secret counsel. Somebody had to tell them. <laughs> you know what happened? A bunch of these guys got saved. And later they're conferring with Luke. Luke, who's, uh, he's accounting, the, he's making this account of the, of the works of the early church. And he's talking to guys that were not on team Jesus at this point. They're on team, we got to stop this. And they saw what happened and they had watched it and they got saved. We know of one person that was part of Team Stop This <laughs> who became part of Team Jesus. And his name was Saul at this point. And I don't know if Saul was there, Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul and wrote like a majority of the New Testament. But, but what Peter and John did, what the power of the Holy Spirit did, it transformed lives. That some who were on the other team joined Team Jesus because of the power of the gospel and because of what they had seen. It says in verse 21, and, they, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, <laughs> finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. For 40 years, more than 40 years, people had been walking by him, and they're seeing him dancing, prancing, praising God. So if, and, and people in political power or in power, have, they, they have to calculate their decision-making precisely, and they decide at this point, killing Peter and John, not an option. So they let them go, but they threaten them. And what do we see happen? The gospel continues to spread. Do you know what it, that it wasn't the miracle that changed anyone's life? What it did was it ignited that spark again. As people leaned in and they go, what is this power? Do you know that doing a miracle, performing good works, doesn't get you any enemies? until you start proclaiming the name of Jesus and the power of resurrection. It's, it's up till this point in the story of the church, it says that they're growing in favor every day. And this is where it starts to turn because now they've done a miracle that's got everybody's attention and they're proclaiming the name of Jesus. Because when God does a good work, it's not just for that person's sake. It's to, glory, it's to get glory to God and that people would ask questions. And they'd listen. And they'd hear the power of the gospel. See, they didn't want people, this, this group of religious elite, they didn't want people believing the story about Jesus. They didn't want people believing that Jesus really rose from the dead. They didn't want people to be free from their religious stronghold. They didn't want people to know that Jesus forgives their sins if you turn to him. They didn't want people to believe that Jesus is the only way. They didn't want the gospel to spread. But there's no stopping it. You know how many times people have thought that the church was done? And even in our day and age, there are a lot of threats to the gospel. But the true power and work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel is not going to stop. We need to not be ashamed of it. 
just because we look around and things done in the name of Jesus might be questionable or they may cause us to want to retreat. We go forward with both the good news, the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done and that he is the only way, and the power and love and power of the Holy Spirit goes with us. We cannot dumb it down. We cannot get around the fact that we're telling the world the other things that you believe are pointless and powerless. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Americans, <laughs> to the ends of the earth. It's the gospel that's the power of salvation. Miracles get no enemies. Skeptics, maybe. But when your life is transformed, you know that people can't argue with that? When you have something that God has done in your life, people can't argue with that. They can be skeptical. Sometimes we give them good reason because we claim something and then we're not really living by it. Good news is we have, a, we have the gift of repentance to turn back. And Jesus is there to say, hey, love, feed my sheep. It's the gospel about Jesus that puts people to the question, do you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation? Do you really believe it? If we really believe it, then we have to tell the story. If we really believe that there is a way to eternal life, we have to tell the story. We have to be able to be uncomfortable when we tell people that there's no other way, <laughs> that that's going to make people uncomfortable. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. We don't get angry when people don't believe in the gospel. It should turn our hearts to pray. Oftentimes I feel like we're, we're in some sort of holy war against the people who suppress the gospel. And, and we need to trust God and say, God, you've got to have a plan in this. And we don't fight against flesh and blood. Even if they point at you and they call you names and whatever they want to do. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We love people. God loves them. But we also don't save everybody because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we're not allowed to just wash our hands and say, no more, I'm done, I'm done ministering to people. It's the power of God for those who are being saved. So let's not be ashamed of the cross. In all the good things that we do in our community, as we go out and we love people and we give away candy to kids and we serve the Hub City Mission or serve at the shelter or, or do community dinners, all those things are just a, a way to try and get people to give glory to God, to ask the question that we could point them to the only way for salvation. We need to not be afraid of that. 
Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you rose from the dead, that you died for our sins and you rose from the dead. Forgive us. Forgive us of our (laughs) taking that for granted. Forgive us of not recognizing the miracles that you're doing in our lives and in our families and in our communities. Forgive us of shying away from preaching the good news. Forgive us of, in some way or another, denying you. Our world is desperate. It's broken. And people are searching high and low for a way to answer the questions of life. And they can't find them. They go after one after the other. And here we are, a people who claim to know the answer. Let us not grow tired of being shot down. Let us be empowered by your Holy Spirit. That no matter what people say about us, that, that, that even when we fail, we can point to you. That you would be glorified in our church, in our lives, in our community. That people might come to know who you are and trust in you. And I pray in this room for people who've trusted in you with all their life, that today you would rekindle their desire to spread the good news. That we wouldn't go around and slap people in the face with truth, but that our lives would be a demonstration of the power and love of God as we proclaim the good news. That we wouldn't separate the two. And for those who are tempted to one or the other, whether you're tempted to not preach the harsh reality of the gospel, but just love. Would you remind us that that's not really loving? And for those who are more comfortable yelling at the world how wrong they are, would you convict us of our own sins and humble us and cause us to love and serve with the same heart that Jesus did, to trust again in your power that you are the one who saves that your word is not void of power. It's not something we can use for our own purposes or for any political gain. But that the gospel might be proclaimed through our lives. So we pray for that. And we need your power, Holy Spirit. Would you come and would you refill us again? Fill us with that power. Not for the sake of seeing a miracle, but for the sake of seeing people's lives transformed by the good news. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.